right, we're live. Hello, everybody. Hello, Chris. How are you doing? Brennan, I'm okay, man. I'm, I'm in my, my, my uh, office here at first because I get to be in the uh, worship service at 11 o'clock. So, oh, nice. Um, I'm doing okay. How about you? Hey, there he is, Eric Barreto. Eric Barreto has joined in on our meeting. Welcome, Eric. Dr. Hello, Eric Barreto. How are you doing? All right. How are you all? Joining join from New Jersey. How's, uh, how's, how's everything going up there? Well, it's uh, Jersey keeps being. I don't know if you follow the NewJersey.gov uh, Twitter handle. Just oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's very on brand for this. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, there's, there's uh, a few things that I wish was go were, were happening in New Jersey when I was there. But uh, yeah, that, that, that Twitter handle, whoever's in, in charge of that, that's like the Stakeham Twitter handle. It's amazing. There's, there's a great New York Times article about them. Oh really? Oh, I gotta, yeah. I gotta check that out. Yeah. I'll send you the link. Yeah. So, uh, you, you, everything's going right with you, the family, and and school, and everything uh, like that. We're all holding on and homeschooling and all. I think we're what, like week five or six or seven or seventeen? I don't even know. Who even knows at this point? Who knows? Okay. Feels so lost in life. Yeah. T yeah time itself exactly. is is good falling. It's a construct. <laughs> It's all a construct. That's right. Uh, speaking of constructs, um, yeah, uh, well, we, we are uh, looking at a uh, well-constructed letter today, uh, Philippians. Um, how, how's about that for a nice little segue there? Uh, oh, super, <laughs> super segue. Uh, but yeah, well, Eric, first of all, just thanks so much for joining us and being here with us. Um, and uh, this is our, our second installment of the Office Hours Bible Study. We just figured um, it would be uh, helpful to congregations who've been displaced because of COVID to have an online space for Bible study and encouragement. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're uh, three uh, uh, Bible PhDs, um, so we might get a little nerdy here, um, but, uh, but we're, all, we're all grateful for everyone who's joining us um, online. Um, and Eric, we, we have a little tradition that we started. You know, I love traditions on week two, right? Um, but a little tradition that we started of uh, when, uh, when we, we kind of introduce ourselves to the show, uh, I mean, we'd love to just hear from you who you are and so on, but also, um, can you tell us a little bit, uh, we, we kind of kicked off our study um, last time talking about our own presuppositions, or at least some of them, um, that guide the way that we relate to scripture um, and how we interpret scripture. I mean, the, the, based on the idea that none of us, like, uh, there, there's no reading from outer space, right? There's no reading from right. nowhere. Um, yeah. So, uh, and anything, yeah, what are a couple of theological assumptions that you have uh, that guide the way that you read the Bible? Sure. Yeah, thanks again for having me on this morning. Uh, so a couple of things that came to mind thinking about our time together. One is um, I often tell my students that no one reads the Bible by themselves. So that even if you go off on a lonely hike, even if you're self-isolating by yourself, even then if you pick up the Bible, you're not reading by yourself because you're always bringing with you uh, the traditions that nurtured you, you're bringing with you your family, you're bringing with you your, the church culture in which you were nourished. You bring in your gender and your sexuality and your race, you bring all this stuff with you. So you're never reading the Bible by yourself, even when you are all alone. And I think there's a great gift in that. I think there's ways in which our deep particularity is a gift for our neighbors. So there are things that other people can read in the scriptures that I can't understand on my own. I need their help with their particular perspective, their particular set of experiences to notice things in the text that I couldn't notice on my own. But I think also it's important then to notice the limitations of our own reading, right? That there are things that I can't notice in the scriptures without the help of my neighbors. And therefore, like that second maybe uh, assumption I carry around is that uh, the reading of scripture is always a communal activity. It's always something that we do together alongside other people. Um, and it's the spirit showing up whenever two or three are gathered. 
the spirit is still alive and well. The spirit wasn't just alive and well when Luke was writing or when Paul was writing, but still with us today in our reading and our interpreting. Uh, and so we need each other's help in order to read the Bible in all its fullness. Yeah, thank you. That, was, that, that is a, a fantastic intro to um, our text today and kind of thinking together about um, difference in unity, which seems to be like a big theme in Philippians yeah. itself. And Eric, I mean, just to say, um, I've really appreciated your work on um, Acts, uh, Luke, Acts, and Pentecost. And can you just give us like a, you know, brief introduction? Because this kind of, this, these themes kind of, um, of that, we, that we might talk about in Philippians 1, like koinonia and kind of one mind and unity and so on, um, but yeah. also what you brought up in terms of your assumptions, like, would you mind just sharing a little bit about your work in, um, on Acts and kind of yeah. this, this sense of diversity and unity? Sure. So in brief, one of the things I often like to teach in churches and in my classroom as well is reading the book, uh, the text of Pentecost, this opening set of chapters in the, the book of Acts. Um, in a lot of study Bibles and even a lot of kind of popular interpretation of that text, it will say that Pentecost is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. The assumption there being that something went wrong at Babel. There was a, a punishment, a curse, the proliferation of language and peoples is a problem that Pentecost solves. But I think that's a pretty, um, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? It's, Saturday, it's Sunday morning. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's an inadequate reading of that text. And I think it's an inadequate reading of Babel too. So what we see in Babel, I think, um, is not God punishing us by making us speak different languages. But what we see instead is a God who chooses to create a world full of languages and peoples and foods and cultures. That that proliferation of difference in Babel is not a curse. It's not a punishment. It's not a bad thing. It's actually an act of creation. Mm -hmm. And I think at least, I think Luke at least reads a story of Babel in the same way. Because if Pentecost were a reversal of the Tower of Babel, what would happen at Pentecost is that everyone would have spoken the same language, right? And it could have been the language of Babel. It could have been, um, God could have invented some perfect language, all like the right words, really, really good words and perfect grammar and syntax. But instead, God doesn't ask us to learn a new language to understand who God is. God speaks to us in each and every one of our weird, strange languages and all their strange syntax and all their strange vocabulary, God approaches us with that language that will most touch our hearts. Um, so one of my bucket list items in life is to get people not to say anymore that Pentecost is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Um, but there's one more step I've been thinking about recently. One is that I've been wondering where, where would we find the wholeness of the gospel at Pentecost? So at Pentecost, the disciples gather together and everybody's hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language. Where do we find the gospel? And I think where we find it is that if I'm hearing it in one language, I'm hearing uh, the fullness of the gospel. But in order to know the real fullness of the gospel, I need to turn to my neighbor to my left and to my right who heard the gospel proclaimed in a very different language than my own and ask them what they heard. The fullness of the gospel isn't found in any one language, but in the many languages of the world. So unity, therefore, is not uh, an opposite to difference and diversity. The kind of unity that I think Paul is writing about here in Philippians and that we see embodied in, at Pentecost is a unity in the midst of difference, not over against it. That our problems are not, as, uh, our differences are not a problem we need to solve, but the very place where God is most living and active today. I love yeah, that. Th thanks, yeah. Yeah, so much. I feel there's so much anxiety even today in the church yeah. about 
um, difference, differing perspectives, the, the need uh, to have sort of a single voice or a single perspective on things. Um, and your, your interpretation sort of a Pentecost that, that it is this diversity that gives us the fullest flavor of the gospel um, is, is, is good. And it doesn't mean that uh, we, can't, we can't take action, as Paul will talk about in Philippians, to move towards those practices that um, are sort of following in the example of Christ, that build up the body of Christ rather than divide it. Um, but there's, I, I do, I think that there's so much anxiety among, among readers of the Bible to say, like, what is the, what is the single message of good news in the Bible? Or, you know, what is the single story that holds the whole Bible together? And I've, I've sort of been convinced and, um, and, 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 and invite students to think that actually even the Bible's sort of rich diversity is a, itself a gift. Um, and that we do it a disservice if we, try to, if we try to make it all say the same thing or sound the same way. Um, but really, we're, we're invited into um, some particular, uh, particular things. And so, Brennan, I want to ask you um, about some particular things about Philippians. Um, your, your background is in Old Testament Hebrew Bible, but you've been teaching on Paul's letters um, in your church for a while. And so what, what, did, what did you notice or what have you learned about Philippians as a particular writing of Paul, maybe, that we should, we should sort of pay attention to? Yeah, um, thanks. Yeah, and I, I'm coming at this a bit with fresh eyes, but also, hey, the two New Testament scholars here on this Zoom call, uh, please jump in and correct me when I'm wrong, because I will be. Uh, no, we're just gonna, time. we're just gonna, we're just gonna write private messages to each other <laughs> on Zoom and forth. all the ways. Gonna, anytime you see me typing. <laughs> just DMs, yeah, right. Uh, well, in any event, so to me, I mean, uh, Philippians seems to stand out in some ways um, from some of Paul's other letters in the New Testament. Also, uh, of course, it seems to be very similar. I mean, it's similar in terms of its like genre. I mean, it's a, it's a letter. It's got the same forms like the salutation and the thanksgiving uh, and the prayer and then kind of the body of the letter and then the, um, the kind of final matters and conclusion at the end. Um, so it looks like a lot of Paul's other letters. There's some interesting things that uh, are kind of unique about this letter too. I mean, some of the terminology seems to be somewhat unique in what we assume to be kind of Paul's um, uh, uh, authentic letters. Um, but some of the themes also stand out too, to me in particular. So I, I'm coming at this rereading in a very careful way, trying to teach um, Paul's letters. And uh, like this sounds so different from Corinthian, the Corinthian correspondence and from Galatians, especially. I mean, you know, in Galatians, Paul just just lets them have it. Uh, and then uh, he's, he's upset, really angry about some of their decisions. And then the Corinthian correspondence, he's both kind of upbuilding, but also kind of upset about uh, the dissension that's happening there. Um, Philippians seems like most, I mean, this is uh, my initial uh, reflections here, but uh, Philippians seems most to me like First Thessalonians um, in terms of a, a letter where Paul really is just enthralled with these people. Uh, and he's, he's really excited to talk to you. It's not that they are doing everything right, um, but that he just, it's a, a kind of a letter of joy and, and friendship. Um, and that he really sees, uh, he's, he's teaching them, um, but he really sees them as kind of living out an example that, that he thinks is worth, worthy or worthwhile in some way, um, uh, uh, worthy of, of, of comment. Um, so, I mean, that, that theme of joy, I think, is a really important thing. I mean, that Paul Paul's not always a joyful guy. I I really don't know what it would have been like to hang out with Paul, um, but uh, this this Paul is probably pretty a pretty fun guy to be with. Um, uh, but also just the theme of that joy doesn't come from your circumstances, that joy doesn't come out of having made it or having made it up the ladder of achievements or having made a name for yourself or having acquired all sorts of 
gold and wealth and whatever. Uh, this, this to me strikes me as a little bit like um, the themes I see in the book of Ecclesiastes, that um, joy doesn't come out of achievements or building up things or profit, et cetera. Um, uh, the joy can even come out of uh, some pretty uh, hard circumstances. As the book of Ecclesiastes puts it, um, you know, find pleasure in, in your toil, in the midst of your toil. And it seems like that's what Paul's trying to do here. Um, his hardship isn't just pure toil, though, it's for this cause. So I think, you know, to me, this letter from prison, he mentions this a few times, and it seems to me kind of strange that there's no, there's not more particular information about the, the context here. Why would he not mention where he was in prison? I guess because they knew, right? Because uh, they had sent him something. But I mean, maybe just throw, just throw us a bone here, Paul. Like, you know, are you in Rome? Are you in Ephesus? Are you, you know, but in any event- Where are prison. the boarding passes? We need these. <laughs> right, 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 yeah, you show us the receipts. But uh, in, in any event, yeah, but this notion of, of a letter from prison, I mean, um, it strikes me that this is a, a, a genre that we can see throughout history. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., letter from a Birmingham jail, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letters and, and notes from prison, and Nelson Mandela, Dorothy Day. I mean, we can see these, folks who, who choose to write from prison and what they choose to write about tends to be these kind of heroes of our faith tend to be um, focusing not on their own suffering necessarily, first of all, but focusing mostly on uh, the prize, right? Like what, what are we working for? What am I suffering for? Um, and, and for Paul, it seems to be that, you know, it's, it's, it's the gospel that he's suffering for. And I, I think we should ask a question. I want to hear uh, Chris and Eric, what, what your take is on the gospel later. What is this gospel that Paul's talking about? Cause I mean, you know, Christians tend today to talk about this as like a, the gospel is this really concise message uh, that you can kind of communicate to someone in a sentence or two um, that that will like turn on their brain and they'll 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 become a Christian. Um, I, I feel like just reading this letter that Paul's talking about something different um, than than that when he talks about the gospel. Um, but then also it strikes me just in this first section that we read today. This there's a lot about. Um, uh, this word pops up twice in the first, and, and ever, anyone who knows an Amy Grant lyric knows this word, koinonia. Um, but I mean, you know, this kind of, a, it was a big deal in the 70s and 80s and, and even 90s, like in the church to talk about koinonia. Um, and I feel like it's kind of fallen out of, I don't know, at least favor a bit from, from what my cultural, uh, you know, sort of linchpins here. But, um, but I do feel like this is a really important theme because uh, Paul mentions it in verse five and verse seven, uh, different forms of this word koinonia. Um, which seems to be something like um, kind of commonality, uh, holding things in common. And, and Eric, I think this in Acts, right, there's references to this kind of term to be foundational. So I'd love to hear what, what you have to say about this word kind of more broadly um, in, in that world. So this kind of citizenship, um, and uh, what, I, what I know about Philippi is that it's a, it's a city that is a Roman refounded city uh, named after Philip the Great, uh, uh, Philip Macedon, Alexander the Great's dad, um, but then refounded by the Romans and turned into like a Roman retirement home, right? Uh, basically settling lots of soldiers there uh, who had citizenship, but then there were Greeks and Macedonians who lived nearby who would not have had some of those rights, so it's an unequal place, um, but also a place that's like kind of focused on this concept of citizenship. So Paul's talking about a different kind of citizenship here, um, and there's mentions of the Praetorian Guard or the Imperial Guard and Caesar's household in the letter. Those are interesting things to throw out there. Um, and then this kind of oneness, uh, and, and we'll get to this too with, the, with the, the, the Christ hymn in chapter two, but these kind of notions of oneness and unity. And so those are all things that kind of pop out to me as being uh, really interesting in this part of the letter. But what about y'all? Yeah, I, I think you've covered a lot of great ground. Um, and, and I think just as a way of reminder to those that are joining us, and, and I'm sure, Eric, you've said this in a thousand times in your intro classes, but one of the things that's 
often true of Paul's letters is that it's in the opening that we begin to see some of the major themes that he's going to develop, particularly in his prayers. If he opens his letters with a prayer, we in, in, in Philippians or in Ephesians, we begin to see some of the themes that are going to be worked out. And so, so Brennan, thanks for pointing out those themes, because often the case is when we, if we pay attention to the first chapter or the first part of a chapter in Paul's letters, we begin to see some really important things. And so we've already begun, as you pointed out, the idea of common life, of, of sharing things in common. Of, of investing in a life together. Paul really views these, these Philippians as partners. And one of the things we talked about last week about, about, Paul's theolo- about Paul as a letter writer is, you know, he's the first collaborator. He's the first, you know, sort of uh, working together with coworkers. And we see this. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't um, always talk this way, but with the Philippians, he really views them as, as his co-workers, as his co-laborers in the, in the, in the, in the work of ministry. Um, and he really sort of po- calls attention to that in this, in this opening uh, chapter. What about you, Eric? What would you say? I think two things jump out to me from some, especially some of the introduction that Brennan just did. One is that the context of the writing strikes me as really important, right? That this is a prison letter. Um, and one of the things to know about ancient prisons is that they're much more permeable spaces than we tend to imagine, right? I don't know if, if people have ever visited a prison, like it's this process, right? It's like um, going through security and there's all these rules. Um, in the ancient world, prisons were far more permeable and you needed the support of people on the outside uh, to feed you, to nourish you, to keep you company. So I think that's part of this is that even as Paul's in prison, there's this permeability with the outside world that strikes me as important. Uh, but second, that's not to romanticize it. And, and I think sometimes we do that with King and Bonhoeffer. We forget the kind of dire circumstances in which they find themselves and the, in which Paul finds himself too. That if there is insight, if there is um, uh, great things to learn about faith in those contexts, that comes at a high cost to the imprisoned. So whether it's Paul or King or Bonhoeffer, the, the, the wisdom that they dispense is one that's hard won. And I think it's important for us not to just romanticize that context and forget that there are people, way too many people, our own contexts, right. suffering under imprisonment often in ways that are uh, deeply problematic, deeply unjust, uh, especially now in our own, own particular moment uh, in the way that uh, the coronavirus is spreading in a lot of a lot of prisons across this country. So I think that that piece of the context strikes me as important, that it's both in the New Testament, this place of insight and faithfulness, but for us not to romanticize it either, to recognize the hard-won insights that, that Paul is sharing here. Uh, and the second thing is what the shape of the gospel is in Philippians and for Paul. And I think y'all are right that so often what we've done is boil it down to a message. And certainly it's that, right? It's certainly the story that we share about Jesus. It's certainly the things that we confess about who Jesus is, what God has done through Christ. But what strikes me about Philippians and so much of other of, of the other Pauline correspondence is that Paul isn't getting them, doesn't want them to get them to the point where they can say the right words, but that they'll live together in a particular way. They'll treat one another in a particular way, that the way that the community lives together, the way that it embodies faith, the way that they treat one another is not secondary to the gospel. It's at its very core. That the way that these communities bear witness to the goodness of God, to the resurrection power of Jesus, to Paul is just so vitally important. So it's not just the message, right? But the message 
and the way that it, um, it shapes a life of a community together. Um, so that's why unity here is so important for Paul is that there's something deeply at stake in this community holding together uh, in Euodia and Syntyche back in chapter four and them reconciling. It's not just a nice to have, it's actually critical for the sake of the gospel for Paul. And I think sometimes we missed that element of Paul's letters in our own when we try to make Paul into this heady theologian full of uh, really important doctrine. It's a pastor trying to hold these communities, these tenuous communities, these fragile communities together. Yeah, I mean, one thing that struck me reading through um, Paul's letters recently to teach them is um, just how often he says, uh, he gives this opinion that sounds like he's handing down doctrine, and then he says, but yeah. don't listen to me. <laughs> like in his own letters, you know, <laughs> like in, in Corinthians and, uh, you know, he's, he gives all this like long, like in, in uh, first Corinthians 11, he gives this whole long kind of weird, um, analogy and like strange exegesis of Adam and Eve, which ends up sounding some somewhat misogynistic. And then, and then he kind of ends it by being like, but who am I to say, right? Uh, you all do whatever you want when it comes to basically gender and leadership. Um, and, and that, that, that has struck me, um, a lot to see that Paul, um, so much of what would have been really important to Christians of the day, Paul says, hey, let's set that aside. And that connects a bit to this um, uh, part of this prayer in verse 9 and verse 10. And there's a really interesting interpretation. And I, I, um, I you know, I kind of don't know enough uh, of, the, of the kind of cultural and historical context to know how much of this is true. But um, it was this uh, verse 9 and 10. And this is my prayer that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless. Uh, and that, that word that is translated in the NRSV, uh, like to basically determine what is best, determines one word. That means basically kind of like a, yeah, a sorting through or choosing something. But then that what is best, it seems that there's a lot of um, uh, argumentation about that. And then the philosophy of Paul's day and the philosophical world in which Paul lived that the offer like, uh, this, this Greek word was kind of like in especially Stoic philosophy, like basically not, not just choosing what's best, but like choosing what's important. Yeah. What do you focus on? Like, what do you have fights about and what do you reconcile about and kind of leave to the side? And, and, and Paul seems to never, he, he doesn't always do this the way we would want to do this, right? He's his own person and he's in his own day. He's, he's got his own ethical uh, opinions and so on, but he seems to encourage us to do this work of sorting um, what's what's crucial and what's not. And um, it seems like that, that work is often just kind of done by people <laughs> in positions of authority and handed down rather than kind of worked out in community. Yeah, I, I think that this is a, the, the, the whole idea of, of discernment in the New Testament and uh, discernment is a major theme, Eric, as you know, in the book of Acts, uh, it takes the, the, the narrative some 10 chapters to figure out that Gentiles don't actually have to be circumcised and that, that what the Holy Spirit is doing um, is, is leading them in that direction. But, but discerning that, that activity of the Spirit is uh, never clear, never, you know, 100% clear. It's always ambiguous. It's always worked out in conversation. And even when we think about uh, what Paul says in Philippians about discernment, or he says something similar in Romans 12, um, I think some Christians might be surprised to learn just how much Paul trusts his communities to work it out. I mean, there's an image of Paul, and it's not an unjustified image of being sort of super controlling, of being a neurotic, you know, sort of control freak. And granted, there's parts of his letters where that seems to be the case, but melded with that or right alongside that is also this view of Paul saying, 
you know, the, the Holy Spirit is active in your community. And, and there's, this, there's this teaching that you've received, but you're going to need to apply it in your own way and in your own context. And, and you're going to need to discern what, what is the best. I can't tell you what the best is, um, but, but you, need to fit, you, you need to live towards that and towards what really matters. Um, and I just thought, uh, as I was working on this passage and, and this idea of what really matters, what, a, what an important uh, challenge for us today in this context to be able to discern what really matters and what's going on in the church right now um, because of COVID and, and the decisions that we're making to worship or not worship and, and to, to join together virtually. You know, all of this is, is sifting for us. What is best? How are we learning uh, to live into what is best in this time period? I'm also struck that that discernment doesn't start with wisdom or insight or knowledge. It starts with love, right? That mm. at the core of that discernment of knowing what is best is a deep incarnational relational love for your neighbors, right? So it's it's not about being smart, it's about being loving. And therefore, because you love, that's how you gain that insight. And then that love is a reflection of God's love for us. Um that especially in these moments when everything is kind of thrown up in the air, defaulting to love is precisely what Paul is calling us to. And I think we've learned uh, in the life of Jesus, in the life of faith of, of those we admire, that if you start with love, that's an extraordinary place to start. Yeah. yeah, that's a really powerful insight, Eric. I mean, and especially now, like in this context that we're currently in, where a lot of things that we thought were important seem much less important. Um, but also a lot of the things that we thought were knowledge, like that were really smart things to do or say, or like, you know, um, I mean, I'm going to kind of show my political card right here, but I mean, just that whole idea of employer-based healthcare when you can go through a pandemic and everyone loses their job and then everyone's kind of pushed off of, you know, that, that, that seems smart in a way. Um, but, uh, you know, if you start from the sense of love, right, what's going to be best for people? Like, you know, and, and the, our, the way we manage our workspaces and our workplaces and so on. Um, I mean, even like my thoughts, you know, when, when, uh, when COVID starts, you know, my thoughts are primarily on how do I do online education and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I was talking to one of my friends um, uh, who's, who's, you know, basically saying like uh, uh, one of my friends, uh, uh, Davis Hankins, his wife, Stephanie Coble Hankins, um, is uh, a minister up in uh, Boone, North Carolina. And, you know, shoot she was primarily concerned not with like, how do, how do I get my service online? But she was primarily concerned with how do we get people fed here in the poorest yeah. county in North Carolina and started this now $20,000 a week food organization distribution. I mean, and I kind of, I felt a little shamed, you know, like uh, in that moment about my priorities, but also just if you start with love, it's going to lead you to some different knowledge, like knowing something differently, right? Like then that kind of, I love in Paul that he keeps going back to this idea that like the wisdom of, of the empire is, is foolishness. Uh, but what looks like foolishness, this crucified Messiah is in fact strength and power and truth and love. And, you know, so, and, and if you start from that, then the whole world looks different, but also um, will act differently and, and there are different outcomes. So just if, if you're keeping score at home at this point, we've probably worked through maybe four verses. So we're doing great <laughs> on nerding out. Uh, that, that seems appropriate. Um, I wanted to, to, to bring out one of the comments in the, the Facebook live stream, which was um, uh, th these rival teachers in verses 15 through 18. There's a, there's a question about, about these people. And so I'm going to read that text and then maybe we can, we can have yeah. a, a bit of a discussion, but it says uh, in 15, uh, some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. So what are we, Eric, what are we to think about these rival teachers uh, that, yeah. that Paul sort of gestures towards uh, uh, in verses 15 through 18 and the sort of suffering that they're increasing uh, to yeah. him while he's in imprisonment? Yeah, one of the metaphors I often use when teaching Paul is that reading Paul's letters is like hearing one side of a phone conversation. And if the person who's talking is someone that you know well and that you love, you can be like, okay, they're talking to so-and-so and they're talking about this, right? You can kind of sort this out. But we may, you know, some of us might love Paul, but we don't have all that information about Paul. So there's a lot of uncertainty here and elsewhere in Paul's letters about who in the world exactly he's talking about. But not only that, we only have one side of the phone conversation. So we don't know how these people, whoever they are, would have talked about themselves. They probably saw themselves as really deeply faithful. And Paul's the one that's trying to increase somebody's suffering and imprisonment, right? So one thing to notice here is that this if we have a picture of the early days of the church being idyllic and peaceful, right? And we sometimes see this with the book of Acts, like, oh, everything's good in Acts and everybody's getting along. There's not a needy person among them. We just don't talk about Ananias and Sapphira and all the other <laughs> terrible things that happen in Acts but that the early church was conflicted. So that when we find ourselves in these moments of conflict, know that we're in good company. It goes back to the very beginning. So yes, even as Paul is calling it for unity, there's this division. Uh, and second then, I sometimes wonder if, if Paul's opponents in the letters are more literary foils than there are anything more substantive, right? That they're, they're a way for Paul to make his argument by creating his own opponents. Not that there aren't actual opponents out there, people he's thinking about, but that for us, maybe our purposes there is to see these opponents as literary foils or ways in which Paul can distinguish and name who he is by distinguishing over against other folks. So that's uh, one way to think about it. And last, um, that just as a realization that even in these early days, those rivalries go beyond differences of opinion or can go beyond differences of opinion to differences that are actually deeply harmful. So even as we started thinking about the, the importance of diversity and difference in the midst of unity, um, there are differences that harm. There are differences that aren't just differences of opinion, but that are harmful to the community. And I think how you discern that line is really important work, but it's also really, really difficult work that I think Paul might be calling us to here. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting that uh, your, your, um, your suggestion that sort of discerning where difference can be, can be problematic versus where it is a gift and uh, a contribution to the church is, is significant. And, and of course, Paul's not always consistent in his letters. I mean, some like Galatians, he's super clear about how he feels about circumcision and about those that are telling the Gentiles in Galatia that they need to be circumcised. Um, at least in this, these three verses from, from uh, Philippians 1, he's, he's less clear. You know, what struck right. me about this was it's not even, it's not what they're preaching. He, he doesn't actually question what they're preaching. He says they're proclaiming Christ. It's all out of the manner or their intention in preaching that, that, he, that he says. Um, 
But, I, but that, even that diversity in Paul's letters to me suggests that, that as we do the same, as you are suggesting, Eric, we're, we may not have the same issues that, that Paul was dealing with. Paul's issues may not be our issues, um, but we can use Paul's letters as a framework or as an analogy to think through um, how we go about dealing with, about dealing with difference, um, and, and, and working for unity in spite of that difference, uh, and, and, and maybe protecting the least among us or the most vulnerable among us from teaching that might be problematic. Yeah. And at the end, right. I love just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way. That's the only thing that matters. It makes me think of in the gospel of Luke, the disciples come back and saying, there's these, or an ax, <laughs> these people are healing in your name, but they're not one of us. And Jesus is like, is, is the kingdom being proclaimed or people being healed? Then don't worry about it. That there's here, I think the Paul that seems particularly exact, exacting in Galatians and First Corinthians here is like, if Christ is proclaimed, then then who cares, right? This and this this trust that no matter how it's done, Christ is being proclaimed, and that's all that matters is really challenging to me, especially when people who I I really deeply disagree with are 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 preaching in ways that I think are not just problematic, but harmful. Yeah. And again, it's about the discernment. Like at what point does that go beyond uh, what's true to the gospel? And at what point do we have to just trust that God is still acting and living even in those spaces? Yeah, yeah I, I, this uh, syncs up too with some of the conversation Paul has in First Corinthians by saying like, hey, I didn't baptize anyone. Actually, I did baptize lots of people, but you know, he, <laughs> he kind of slips that in. But he says, you know, I, I didn't baptize you in the name of Paul and, you know, no one is baptized into Cephas's or Peter's community. And, you know, I mean, he, he points out that there's a lot, of, a lot of these factions based on kind of who you support. And it's, it's striking to see that today too. Uh, you know, basically like we've, we've got our leaders or our thought leaders or our political leaders, whoever, who sync up with us. And then we just kind of attach to them um, all, all, you know, all honor and and it really does have to do kind of an honor shame thing right i mean this is part of the greco-roman context of this that uh you know if, if you convert lots of people and become this big important person you might be kind of higher on the honor spectrum um and if paul doesn't get the credit he's losing out on some of his honor you know i remember uh you know seeing the kind of public inscriptions of uh, people people's works and donations and you know the this is kind of a, an important thing that even today to broadcast what you've done right um to kind of build up honor for yourself but but here yeah paul's like that that shouldn't be important now maybe paul sometimes is kind of defending his own legacy and so on but at least here he's recognizing that 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 shouldn't be the case right um i mean i, I it, it strikes me that uh you know in thinking about um our different political factions but also uh, theological and church factions today you know, yeah, trying to uh, have better conversations. I mean, I, I come from the Episcopal Church, part of the Anglican Communion, which has had a lot of, um, let's say, unfruitful dialogues over the last uh, 20 years uh, about primarily sexuality. Um, and, you know, I know where I stand on those issues, but, um, it, you know, is what, how, how are we talking to one another and listening to one another and trying to be together, um, but also not be exclusionary and drawing those lines of where, where is this exclusion? Like uh, uh, Paul's talking about the exclusion of Gentiles um, in, in Gentile culture and language and so on, you know, in, uh, in the book of Galatians. Um, uh, where, where do we draw those lines? And I think that's that if you start with love and then build up, uh, like you could point it out with verses 9 and 10, uh, Philippians 1. I mean, maybe, maybe this is a good way to kind of uh, order our operations. But anyway. Yeah. I want to... I want to bring up a comment that Mary Catherine Robinson made just now in the, in the, uh, the comments on Facebook. 
Um, and she says, do we prioritize differences according to the love that is there, the relationships that are already developed and established? And I, and I think, I think that's, an, that's a really great suggestion that, that as we think about difference and unity, what if we approached it first from a position of love? Um, and, and first as a position of, I am called to love these people with whom I disagree. Um, and even if that's hard and that's radical, I'm still called to love these people with whom I disagree. And I also wonder if, um, if there's an illustration in Paul's language here of whatever, it doesn't matter as long as Christ, Christ is proclaimed. We in the Protestant tradition, one of the sort of unfortunate heritages of being in the Protestant tradition is we have gotten in the business of trying to de decide whether or not our denominational enemies are preaching Christ. And we often tie the preaching of Christ with a given social issue or a given uh, theological issue or a given worship or liturgical issue. And so we say, like, if you baptize babies, you're actually not preaching Christ. Um, or if you, if you insist on adult baptism, you're not actually preaching Christ. We sort of link them up. And what would it, what would it mean if we approach those with whom we disagree with the benefit of the doubt that, that in some way or fashion, God is using them to preach Christ? Um, and and uh, again, keeping in mind, like Eric, you said earlier, that, that there are differences that can be dangerous and can be harmful. Um, you know, uh, my, my wife is, is an ordained pastor in the PCUSA, and uh, there are denominations that don't ordain women. And uh, sort of saying, well, that's, that's fine for you can be really harmful and hurtful for her because it's an, it, it invalidates a very big part of who she identifies as and, and how she lives into what God has called her to do and be. And so that's just one small example of where, where yeah, there's difference. And, you know, if, 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 a, if a friend or a family member is a part of a congregation that doesn't ordain women, um, I can say as long as Christ is proclaimed, to God be the glory. But I, I also do so knowing that, that that can be really harmful yeah. uh, for Janelle's, my wife's own calling and, and sense of vocation um, as well. I wonder if maybe that goes back to the insight that we were talking about earlier about prison, that when Paul says all that matters is Christ is being proclaimed, he's doing that not from a place of privilege or comfort, but he's in the grips of the empire's power. He's in the, he doesn't know if he's going to get out. He doesn't know if this is the end of his life. So that, that, that claim doesn't come from a place of a lack of harm, but precisely because he is in so much danger, precisely because he's so vulnerable, even then he can make this claim. So I do wonder if those of us who hold certain privileges because of our gender, sexuality, and our race, then it's easier sometimes for those of us who have those privileges to say, all that matters is that Christ is being proclaimed, and that those who are harmed maybe have to think about that in in a more complicated way. So some differences don't matter that much, right? And I think we can list, you know, uh, what kind of worship you do. Is it contemporary or is it hymns? Whatever. I mean, that that's, Christ is being proclaimed. On the other hand, there are churches that we know are, are beyond the pale of the gospel. So the Westboro Baptists of this world are like a deeply racist congregation that doesn't hide its racism. Between that, there's a lot of space and a lot of communities and a lot of things that we have to wrestle with and discern. And I wonder here if one key practice of love is to trust those on the margins when they tell us what's happening in these communities and how they're being harmed in those moments. So that uh, listening to the imprisoned, for example, here, 
uh, even the uh, sometimes privileged in prison, but listening to the imprisoned, listening to the marginalized, looking to the margins uh, for a moment of discernment strikes me as particularly important. And Paul's um, witness here too, I mean, I, I may be conflating Galatians and Acts a bit, um, but you know, where, where Paul does kind of pal around with Gentiles, people who were um, excluded from some forms of table fellowship in early, uh, in early Christian circles or early Jesus following circles, um, you know, and, and he, he brings those folk into Jerusalem and he walks around with them and hangs out with them. And, and it's his way of kind of showing, hey, I'm, I, I may be as in, in, Paul's own words, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Um, uh, maybe circumcised in the eighth day and all that, but but here I'm going to like use my social capital uh, within the Jesus movement uh, to try to promote um, the inclusion of people uh, without trying to force them to fit in to our preconceived notions of what a, a good Jesus follower looks like. Uh, does that make sense, or is that? Yeah. No, I think that's right, and uh, I think even in Jesus' own practices, right, and. Again, thinking about the Gospel of Luke, he eats with sinners and tax collectors, which we all know about, but he's also eating with people of means and the and Pharisees and other sorts of religious leaders. So this isn't, the going to the margins is not a, choo, a choosing of the margins over against everybody else, but in choosing the margins, we're choosing the whole of humanity, right? If, we, if we're there at the margins, if we're there with the, the disabled and the broken and the oppressed and all that, then then everybody else can be brought into. Yeah, and this, there's a sense that too in, in uh, verse five when Paul says, you know, you're, you're sharing in the gospel. And like you pointed out earlier, Eric, that the gospel is this kind of event or the thing that's happening, not just a message. Um, and it's a thing that's happening about kind of the salvation of the world, which means more than just something happening in the last day, although Paul does mention that here. But it's this like working out of the the sort of fruition of the world, right? Like that the blessing comes to all the nations of the world. I, I come at this from kind of Genesis 12, um, you know, think, thinking of uh, the blessing to, to Abram and Sarah. Um, uh, and I think, I think Paul's got that kind of on his brain too with the whole, uh, he goes back to Abraham and Sarah as um, examples a lot. Um, uh, and, and I think in, in part of that is because he's thinking of this kind of blessing going to all the nations, um, the inclusion of all peoples as those as themselves. Um, they don't have to, to change to become a part of this community. But that sharing in the gospel, that koinonia, um, where that occurs there, that the gospel is something that can be shared, it has to be shared in um, by a community um, for it to actually be a gospel. And that's the, the, the gospel. Yeah, it's much, it's much more dynamic than you know, uh, a, a five point prayer or five point confession that, that one might make. It's not, it's more than the Romans road. It might include the Romans road or some version of the Romans road, but it's much fuller than that. It's, it, it's something, it's something bigger. Um, I just want to point out that there's some rich discussion going on in the comment section. So thanks to everyone for doing that. Um, the one of one of the one of the things that that struck me from the some of the comments was uh, this discerning you know sort of problematic teaching and unproblematic teaching sort of takes us back to the role of discernment and communal discernment and I just want to highlight two things one. I think Paul puts a lot of responsibility on his communities. And, and in many ways, it's so much easier to live if there's five things you must believe or there's five things you must do to be a Christian. And it's far more difficult if, if you have to discern and if you have to take responsibility for, for saying yes or no to certain teachings or certain ways of living. And uh, another thing that was sort of highlighted in the comments is that, Eric, that, that role of love, that, that once you love someone, you are transformed by them. 
Um, and as soon as you know somebody with that deeply love, that, that deep sense of love, whether they're your enemies or somebody that you think is a, a dissident teacher, all of a sudden, um, there's, there's love. Um, and I, and I know that in my own experience and in, in my own, uh, sort of significant changes of, uh, theological persuasion or orientations, they've come because I've allowed myself to actually be encountered by somebody who's different and, and, and hear them and, and learn from them. Uh, and I love the suggestion of what does it mean for, uh, what would it mean for us to love those at the margins and prioritize their experience and, and their, their lived experience How can we go about thinking about the gospel? Yeah, thanks. And, and uh, one thing that strikes me too, but just about the opening here, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. And, and Chris, you pointed out last week that, uh, you know, Paul is part of an organization, writes as a part of an organization, works part of, you know, he's, he's fundraising. Um, I also want to point out for all the pastors out there, uh, you know, Paul is fundraising. Paul might not, might be a tent maker in some ways, um, but he, when he leaves those communities, um, he, he asks them for support and, and he asks them for a lot of it. And he seems to, you know, that's part of what, what the cause of the letter is, right? That Epaphroditus is bringing him, as, as Eric pointed out, this ministry to him. He asked the Philippians, bring me food because I can't get food in, in jail. They don't feed me here, right? Uh, so they, he has to rely on the support, but also the support for the other people who work with him, like Timothy, um, uh, to, to do their gospel ministry. But so there's this huge organization that's a part of this. It's not just kind of Paul, the, the, the solitary guy, but then also to all the saints. And I, I, the, the language of saints and bishops and deacons um, sounds exclusionary and hierarchical to many of our ears. Um, but I just want to ask you all, I mean, I, you know, based on my, my cursory research here, I mean, I, I'm coming from the Old Testament, I, I hear saints, I hear holy, I hear sanctified, I hear like should be everyone. Um, you know, I hear, I hear the end of Leviticus where it's, you know, you're all supposed to be holy. Um, I know that uh, sainthood as a, as a particular practice and institutional structure of the church develops over the, over the years, but this, this is probably something more akin to the, the entire community. But then also the bishops and deacons, um, a lot of people might be surprised uh, to learn, and we'll have Beverly Gaventa on uh, in a few weeks as well to talk about her research on this, but to hear about how influential and active and powerful women were in the early church, uh, hearing about uh, Phoebe and Junia, um, these, uh, you know, bishops and deacons and overseers in the church. Um, uh, and, and so what do you all think about that kind of... Um, I don't know, the, the, the hierarchy language that we see here and, and in some of the later epistles, the pastoral epistles versus kind of the more, I don't know, like socially democratic or, you know, uh, inclusionary stuff that we see in Paul. Yeah, I think, you know, what we see, I think, is, is a community here growing and, and trying to find structures that help them make sense of the world. So um, it's not clear exactly, you know, what these titles would have meant. Uh, there does imply to be some sort of leadership positions, but and again, it's really easy to import lots of ideas we have about what bishops and deacons might look like. Right. Um, but there, you know, you needed leadership structures, and there are different kinds of roles that people played. I think about, for example, the women in again the Gospel of Luke who are following around the disciples and providing for their needs. That there are these different roles that people play. One thing that I find really helpful in noticing this, and then also looking, and here this is an insight that I got from Beverly Gavenza too, from this great lecture she did once, that if you read those last chapters of the letters, the ones that we normally skip, uh, all the people being named, that that isn't just afterthought for Paul, but it is this way of building in the network, of building the community, of naming people by name and naming their gifts and naming their parts in these communities, that these letters 
we probably can't say enough, are being written to communities, to structured uh, ways of gathering, to people wrestling with one another and people who got along and people who didn't get along and people who saw things differently. That that embodied reality might clarify for us the kind of stakes uh, the letters have for us. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is, you know, there's there's this very strong narrative in New Testament studies, Eric, I'm sure you're familiar with, that that people are beginning, I think, to um, to poke away at. Um, my colleague at Emory, John Boyles, has written on this, that the, sort of the assumption is that uh, order or offices only came later in the church. Right. You know, that before that, it was all sort of charismatic gifts and it was and it was disordered and and or it, there, it was hierarchical or it was uh, democratized and um everybody sort of was on equal footing and it was only much later in the first century right. or or, or yeah. late in the first century or in the early second century that formal offices came in and philippians is sort of like this big big problem if you view the, the sort of trajectory that way because even if it's written in 62, which it could have been written earlier than that, it's very early. And it, it reminds me that, you know, my wife is a church planner and whether she calls her, her leadership team a session or a leadership team, you know, at the end of the day, eventually somebody has to mow the lawn and somebody has to pay the power bill and somebody, you know, like, so even as, even as organizations are, are very fluid and, and we might call them democratized, there still is a need for roles. And so it, it, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul is naming people, um, bishops and, and, and so forth, in this opening of Philippians. I think, I think as Brennan said, we're right. We're, we would be wrong then to import all of this sort of hierarchical understanding that has taken hundreds of years to develop in the early church. Um, but it, we shouldn't be surprised that, that there are people who have leadership roles because, um, you know, after all, it's somebody's house uh, that they're meeting and it's, you know, somebody's got to coordinate gathering people together. And so, um, and there are plenty of other models in the ancient world, whether we think about Greco-Roman associations or, or, or even Jewish synagogues that would maybe use different vocabularies, but have functionaries, people who are responsible for playing a particular role. And so maybe it's not a, a either egalitarian or hierarchical model, but perhaps it's much more fluid and interactive than, than we tend to think. Yeah, it, it also strikes me too that like, you know, Paul's use of political language here and Paul uses political language elsewhere um, in maybe striking ways like the that there there is an organizational model but it, it kind of upends some of the um, presuppositions of power at the time and, and today I would imagine I mean so when Paul calls the 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 church we I mean which what's translated for us as church I means ecclesia which really means kind of like yeah the, the, the ones who are called out which often meant like the town council right like the the voting body of citizens in the in the in the, the town but that this would like incorporate you know, Junia and Phoebe and Nympha and Colossians, who the, the church meets at her house and so on. That, that uh, this this is um, countercultural in a way to call your meeting the town council, and this seems to um, uh, kind of open up in some ways, and but also underscore some of the citizenship stuff that Paul uses here in Philippians. That um, we're belonging to a different social and political structure, like the, you know, the, and thinking not of politics, right, as like uh, who scored what points on, you know, Bill Marshall or whatever, you know, like, what, what did what did someone say on MSNBC today or or on Fox, right? Um, but instead, thinking of politics as like the like the 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 way that we organize ourselves and um, the way that we do this work of trying to determine what's best or or what's important and how to organize our resources, right? Like, I mean, that's in a way that that's politics, that's real politics. 
And Paul seems to be super interested in that here. I'd, I'd recommend the Catherine Grieve article um, that's in our resources um, uh, on online uh, that that I think goes into this and uses Catherine Tanner's work on God's politics, which I, I find really um, a helpful uh, framework for all of this. Um, can I can I uh, ask uh, Chris and Eric? Um, I, the, the, the one big topic we haven't touched on in, in our uh, section here for today, uh, verses 1 through 26 of chapter 1, is to me um, the part that's filled with like the most aphorisms that I just know from being a Christian, uh, but also um, is really complicated and uh, kind of confusing to me, this, uh, to, you know, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Um, Paul, is Paul contemplating harming himself or something. I mean, like, you know, there's, there's this, uh, kind of, uh, attitude towards death that I find, um, it kind of shocked me just again to read this. Um, but there's, there's this kind of hope in the gospel, um, uh, in verses say 19 through 26, um, and this hope for what will come and that, that, that I'm going to be with Christ in the future and so on. Um, but what, what is Paul debating here and what are the stakes? Yeah. Eric, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Chris, I thought you were going to jump in. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think Brennan that there's, there, there's a, there's at least a, a scholarly tradition um, that wonders about this, this language about to die is gain. And uh, it, you know, um, is, is wondering if, 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 if we should understand this reflection on the part of Paul um, as within the the sort of the the context of ancient discussions of of the good death or of suicide, um, and that and 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 so scholars have written articles about is Paul contemplating suicide at this point? Um, and I think we can say at least by reading this text, sort of at a at a very like service level way, Paul seems to at least want to die. Um, I, I mean, that strikes me as apparent. He's vacillating, but but he sees death as a form of deliverance. Um, I think it's interesting that in verse 19, he says, I know that that your prayers and, and your work is, is going to work out for my deliverance. And one of the questions that I have is, well, what, what does Paul mean by deliverance there? Um, is, is, is Paul's deliverance um, in this sense um, his his experience of being released from prison and being able to proclaim the gospel more freely, um, or is deliverance uh, his eventual death um, and that will allow him to go and be with Christ? Um, the the you know the 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 language there of deliverance in Greek it's it's soteria it's it's his salvation um, and 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 so I think it it has that ambiguity in the text itself to say um, what is Paul ultimately waiting for what is he hoping for um, and the the conviction that he has in in this in this passage is even if it would be better for me to die and go and be with Christ I'm going to remain in the flesh because it's more beneficial for you. Um, which, which is just one more example in Philippians of where, where Paul holds up considering the needs of others in front of your own needs. And sort of, uh, he's modeling that here. Like, even if he says categorically, it would be better for me to go and be with Jesus. I'm going to stay in the flesh because it's more beneficial for you. And so I think that there's some clarity there, even if there's some debate or some ambiguity in other places. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, I think... You know, often trying to get inside the minds of ancient people or even contemporary authors, right? Like that, yeah. it's a really difficult task to take on. So two things I might add. One is that there's this language of the day of Christ throughout here. So there's this, um, even if it's tempered compared to, say, First Thessalonians, this sense of the imminent 
expectation of the judgment of God, yeah. of a day of transformation, of a day of Jesus' return when the world would be set right. So what Paul, when Paul is talking about living and dying, he's doing so, I think, in his own imagination in the antechamber of eschatological hope, right? So the world is about to turn. I'm at the brink of this um, urgent, necessary transformation of the world. There's this urgency about the moment. And I wonder if that's one piece of context that's important here. The second one is, again, going back to prison. In prison, he's in the antechamber of, of imperial justice or imperial death. So does that create another sense of urgency for his own particular moment that he doesn't know if he's going to get out? He doesn't know if that'll be part of his deliverance. Um, and he's reflecting on this tension between both his desire for deliverance, maybe desire for just for stuff being so hard. Like just, I just want it to be over. And I, and I wonder if right now, and I find in the, in Corona tide that there are days when it, it feels better than other, I feel better than others. Yeah. Right. And some days I just want to like, can't wait till it goes back. And other days I'm like, this would just need to persist and keep going. And is there the sense where he's he doesn't want to do this anymore? It doesn't have to be even suicidal, but just God, can this come to an end? Can this oppression and this these troubles finally come mm -hmm. to an end? And is he kind of showing his own sense of vulnerability and sharing that with the community, but saying, again, back to something Chris said, right? What's more important is that is that I love you and I'm going to stick with you and that it's. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to sustain. I'm going to persist precisely for your sake, because your lives together are that important to me and therefore that important to God as well. And yeah, he, yeah. Sorry, he strikes me as, I mean, one way to read this, one way to hear this is, uh, is, is through, the con through conversations that pastors have all the time with and, and families have all the time with um, people who have lived a good long life yeah. and are just saying, I'm, I'm ready to, I've done the work that I needed to do and I'm ready to go on. And that's not a, that's not a super negative thing for them to say. It's just them saying, you know, we talk as a pastoral staff here at First Press all the time about people who, who are in their eighties or nineties. And one of the things they say in pastoral care visits is when I die, nobody, none of my friends are going to be left. Um, and, and, but you, you hear that, that desire to, to depart and be with Christ, not as a resignation necessarily. That's, that's not the only way we could read it, but as one of, Hey, I've done the work. I, you know, I've lived this life. I've had a good life. Um, and now I'm ready to move on into the, to the next phase of living. That could be one way for us to, to understand, um, these, this reflection in, in this part of the chapter. Yeah, and just noting that it comes right after 15 uh, through 18, you know, where he's talking about how his own stature, stature, his own status, like kind of building up points, scoring points and so on, building up his honor is not the point. Um, and later on, he'll get into an example of kind of self-emptying leadership. Um, and it seems that this might, this kind of like self-emptying, self-abnegating talk here that, you know, I might, I, I could just die uh, and so on. Um, maybe, maybe too, that kind of feeds into the kind of overall theme of the letter of Paul's ideas about leadership, his own, his own sense of importance, right? That like, I'm not important. I could go away and it wouldn't even matter. And I'd even be better off for it, but I've been called to do this work. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick to it and I'm going to help you. But yeah. And Eric, I love your, your point to say that this is about, it's about them. Right. And I, you know, kind of throughout, you can see in this letter that Paul's joy in, uh, uh, in the Philippian 
church uh, in, in, in the saints um, that, 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 that feeds him and fuels him and gives him kind of joy to, to go on in difficult times. But also just in thinking about the prison, right? That is what you said, Eric, that the prison would have been a miserable space and in miserable spaces, um, people can sometimes give up hope um, uh, and having things that they can hold, that give them joy, right? Reminding ourselves, even if we're stuck in, some of us in uh, much more miserable situations than, than others right now. I mean, you know, you and I, Eric, we, we have jobs and homes and, you know, families with us and, you know, and it's hard and this is a hard time for us. I mean, it's a hard, hard time, much more difficult time for a lot of people who are confined in certain ways, stuck in certain ways, feel like they have no hope, but finding those relationships, uh, even from afar, even when in confinement, right. Even separated by distance that can, cause joy in us and fuel us to, to keep pushing on and doing the good work that God has called us to do. That might be, um, uh, you know, sort of what Paul might be working through right here. Um, yeah. something that we might be working through some of us, uh, in, in our own ways today. And, and to that giving up on hope, it's, is not a sign of faithlessness, mm-hmm. but sometimes giving up on hope comes from precisely having these high expectations is deep faithfulness and it falling short because the world is what it is. And sometimes people are who they are Mm. that maybe we can, especially in this moment, like in those bad days, it doesn't mean that you're not being faithful. It doesn't mean that you don't trust God, Mm. that there is a way in which our, our frustration and our hopelessness is itself a form of faithfulness of calling God to deliver on God's promises. God, you have promised this. And us calling for that and praying for that and sometimes not being able to pray for that, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a form of faithfulness as well. Yeah. yeah. One, of, one of the things, I know we're, we're just a minute over time, um, but, but I want to, Brennan and I are going to have to come back to the day of the Lord uh, yeah. and eschatological orientation of, of Philippians. Or the day of the Lord might come back for us. We'll yeah, see. That's right. Maybe by next week. Um, but, but Eric, one of the things that I typed in the chat, the chat on Facebook was, how, how are you going to wait well? Because one of the things that strikes me about this, this last part of the passage that we've been talking about is Paul is in the business of waiting. Uh, he's awaiting perhaps his deliverance from prison, but more than that, he's awaiting the return of the Lord. And we find ourselves in a period of waiting right now. We're, we're in this, this period of, of longing and waiting for some change in our life. And um, I was thinking about this on my walk this morning that, you know, sometimes when I wait, I anxiously wait. Um, I don't wait well. And Paul's sort of response of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to struggle with you. I'm going to continue to invest in you. I'm going to continue to have faith and love and joy. Um, for me, are good illustrations of in my periods of waiting, in my seasons of waiting, um, I need to, I need to, to wait well um, and not maybe anxiously uh, waiting. Well, so I wrote, uh, I wrote a little piece about this. I sent the link to you. Maybe you can share it with folks. Yeah. Uh, but that, um, I think part of the difficulty of waiting is that, um, waiting can be a moment when we learn something critical about God, something we didn't know, something we couldn't have known, but that waiting comes again at a cost that the waiting is not like idyllic meditating on a rock in some pretty, uh, national park or something like that. But that often waiting happens in the midst of difficulty and pain and loss. Right. right. Uh, so I think this naming that reality strikes me as important, that waiting is both instructive and really, really difficult. Yeah. Well, Ooh. speaking of uh, waiting and uh, anticipation, I'm sure uh, a couple of folks at least are, are waiting to get off of this, but yeah. I want to thank you, Eric, so much 
for blessing us with your time uh, oh, and, you and your insights. Um, you know, we, uh, Chris and I both are big fans of your work and uh, we look forward to, to hearing from you more. And, um, you know, I, I uh, commend all of your work and your writings and your research and teaching. Uh, there's uh, lectures that Eric gives online that people can Google and find on YouTube. Um, Normally, Eric can be found uh, teaching at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, where he's professor of New Testament, and we want to thank him for his time. Uh, join us again next week on Office Hours, where we'll jump into the end of Philippians 1 and then go into chapter 2. And who will be joining us then, Chris? We will be, we will be joined with the delightful and brilliant uh, Dr. Jeanette Oak, who uh, is a professor at Azusa Pacific University at their seminary. So she'll be coming to us from the West Coast, hopefully with lots of coffee and lots of energy. <laughs> All right, we'll see you all then. Eric, again, thank you so much, and blessings to everybody. See y'all. Thanks,